Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. Good morning. Happy Monday. Thanks for starting your week with us here at Snapshots in Hockey History. As always, let's go ahead and get the business out of the way first. Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But if you want to do something nice, you want to give us a hand, please leave a five-star review for us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I know we got picked up on, I think, Friday by Spotify. Also, please don't forget to follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History and at Snapshots in on Twitter. We got a great interview with Tim Taylor this week, but before we kind of touch on that and I give you some background information, I want to wish everybody a happy Veterans Day and Remembrance Day weekend. And along with it being Remembrance Day, it was Hockey Hall of Fame induction weekend. I was very excited to see that Martin St. Louis was going in. I feel like when Martin played, he kind of was always second fiddle to somebody else. In Tampa Bay, he was always behind Vinny LeCavalier. In New York, he was always behind Rick Nash or somebody else like that. I still remember the first time I ever saw him play. My dad took me a game at what was called at the time the MCI Center, where we saw the Washington Capitals play the Tampa Bay Lightning in the last game of the 2001 season. And there was this little forward out there that was incredibly fast and beating everyone to the puck. And it was Martin St. Louis. I remember I got home and read all about him and was like, wait a second, this guy was with the Flames and got cut? And I think the fact that he got cut from the Calgary Flames and was stuck in the minors and then got signed by Tampa and had to work his way through the lineup really makes the story of him getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame so much greater. Something else I remember from that game, it's so funny the things you remember, is I remember my dad got us these tickets, and this was actually the last NHL hockey game we went to together. And my dad had Parkinson's disease, and we had to climb all the way to the top to get to our seats in the nosebleeds. And right when we got up there, my dad was hungry. I went out. I got him a hot dog. I could see in his face. He's so excited. And then all of a sudden, I see his face kind of like turned down. And he just frowned. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what happened. I go, Dad, what's wrong? He looked at his hot dog and the hot dog had fallen out of the bun and rolled down. He looked so defeated. It was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Of course, I went and got him a new hot dog. But in the years after, whenever we were watching a Caps game, I'd always say, hey, dad, I think I see your hot dog up there in the rafters. It was something fun. I know it's kind of stupid, but I just thought I'd share that with everybody. I'm sure many of you have memories with fathers or mothers where you go to a game and you remember something that had nothing to do with the game. But when you think about it, it always brings a smile to your face. And that was one of these things for me. In fact, if you do have these stories, please send them to me. Shoot me an email at brettsmall84 at gmail.com. I love hearing about these types of stories. But for now, I want to go ahead and get to the Tim Taylor interview. After all, that's why you guys are here. This interview was recorded probably about two or three months ago, and I give you all permission to make fun of me as much as you want after this episode. I was still experimenting with the format and kind of seeing where I wanted to go with the show and see how everything would play out. And at one time, I had the brilliant idea of trying to incorporate hockey lingo or slang into each interview. I thought maybe people would find it funny. So, of course, we're doing the interview, and at one point, Tim Taylor says pronger, and I thought he said gonger. So, to describe a goal, I go, hey, he scored a great cookie. And I felt like Tim was just like, yeah, but didn't call me out on it because he was so cool. But looking back, it was pretty embarrassing. And needless to say, I scratched the idea of using slang terminology during interviews. For those people that are listening that might not know who Tim is, Tim's a two-time Stanley Cup champion who won a couple of Detroit, also won one with Tampa, eventually went on to captain the Tampa Bay Lightning as well. Now he works with the St. Louis Blues. 
And for his episode, we dive into the Detroit Red Wings-Colorado Avalanche rivalry, really the beginning of it. After all, Tim played in that first series where the two teams met in the playoffs for the first time, and that injury with Chris Draper took place, Claude Lemieux being all over the place, the trash talking in the newspaper. We dive into all that. During part one of the interview, we really kind of cover the basics. We talk a little bit about the history between the two teams, them playing during the regular season, also the move from Colorado to Quebec, as well as his ascension through the Detroit Red Wings organization. Before we start the interview, I also want to emphasize something. Even though Tim Taylor might have not have really liked the Colorado Avalanche players because that's how heated this rivalry was, without question, I have no doubt in my mind that he respected every single one of them as well. And I think that's one of the traits that makes Tim so interesting is while he is such an intense competitor, he also respects every single person he played against because they were in the NHL and they were National Hockey League players. I know this was a bit of a long intro today. Thanks for sticking with us. Now on to the interview with Tim Taylor. This rivalry, in my lifetime at least, was one of the best rivalries in hockey because not only did it have the physical play, it had the talent behind it. You guys won five of seven Stanley Cups. It was crazy. And before we dig into that, though, I kind of want to talk about how these two teams kind of formed and got on the path that they that they got on. And I want to start that by by asking you, you know, you were in the Vancouver Canucks organization. How did you end up in Detroit? Well, I was I got traded uh, halfway through the year uh, from Baltimore to, to Hamilton, which was basically Washington to Vancouver. I only spent half the year there. So it was just basically a movement for me just to try and get out of the organization and try and, and, and feel, um, you know, rewrite my, 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 my thought process, I guess, and, and uh, moving forward. So I really had a good second half with uh, the Vancouver team. And then uh, um, Doug McLean uh, and Brian Murray, um, they were the ones that were, were um, coaching Washington when I was drafted there. And then um, Doug McLean actually got sent down and Terry Murray went back up, went up and they fired uh, Brian. So Doug McLean was my coach in the minors. They took over uh, Detroit. And as soon as I became unrestricted, they asked me to sign with them. I feel like the Detroit Red Wings have been so good at developing talent, whether it's through the draft or through the minor league system and then bringing them up. And then they, they t- turn these guys into superstars. Why? Yeah. I, the one thing that they've done that they've done very well is not rush guys. Um, they've always had patience with guys. And they had that luxury because their team has been very good. Uh, they can insert some older players and some holes here that, that they feel that the young guys can't fulfill at the time. So they give their young guys that, that productivity and time in the minors to develop. And, when I played in Adirondack, we had like, I, I, I was looking back, like Chris Osgood was our goalie. We had Jamie Pusher spent a huge amount of time in the NHL, as well as Bob Bugner and Jason York. Both spent probably four or 500 games in the NHL. Up front, we had Marty LaPointe. We had Darren McCarty was there the year before. But we had uh, Chris Draper was there that year. Steve Maltese was there. So we had Mike Knubel was there. We had probably the most guys I've ever seen turn uh, from that year, turn in the NHL, prime NHL players. A year later, so I've never seen anything like that where eight guys, nine guys are off that minor league team and go on and play considerable amount in the NHL. Some play some games, but not as much as what these all those guys had full careers in the NHL starting out in the minors. So I've never seen anything like that. But Detroit seems to boast those those guys all the time because they have the luxury of they had so many good leaders. Obviously, when you look down at their leadership, Stevie Wiley in the way and Sergei Fedorov and 
you know, the Paul Coffees, the, the Keith Primos, the Neil Cicerelli, Ray Shepard. They had a huge amount of leadership uh, on that team and some veteran players that they could allow their young players to develop. And, and that luxury uh, is uh, other teams would love to have because they don't have to rush their, their young players along. That makes complete sense. And, you know, it shows. 94-95, it's kind of your first uh, you know, you were there partially. You were there for several games. And then I know you got into a few playoff games as well. You guys made it all the way to the finals. The things are definitely working in Detroit. But up north, the Quebec Nordiques are a team. They were in the WHA and now they're in the NHL. And Marcella Boo has been begging for help with this team because Quebec is such a small market. Do you remember playing in the Lacrosse and, and what it was like? And what was the reputation among players about Quebec? Well, you got to remember that they, when, when this all transpired with them that what was happening at that point was, was the Canadian dollar was plummeting, right? And the U.S. Right. dollar was skyrocketing. So it was a combination of, of when the, the markets were, when the, the salary was go, salaries were going up, um, that he couldn't afford to, to bring in free agents, a big free agent. And then really at the end of the day, there's a million people in, in, in Quebec. And to, to really survive in a big market, the uh, or, or to be a franchise in, in, in the big markets like the New York, he, he couldn't compete with the New York, the Toronto, the Montreal, and, sure. and because the industries that they had in, in Quebec just didn't allow it. So you had to rely on basically the fan base, the core fan base. They just couldn't afford the tickets anymore. They couldn't afford the skybox. They couldn't afford what the new NHL was bringing. Unfortunately, they just couldn't survive there. So that team, I mean, they they moved to Colorado. I mean, the great thing going back to the question is that it was a great facility in Quebec. Guys loved to play there. It was a it was a hard place to play. The fan base was very loyal to the to the players. But at the end of the day, when you look at Quebec, and it, it was the Montreal Canadiens. It was you know they wanted Quebec to do well, but at the end of the day, it was all about the Montreal Canadiens at that time. So it was a hard market for them to survive in. Sounds like it. And Marcel Abu agrees to go ahead and sell the team. He ends up selling it to Comsat Video Enterprises for $75 million, which I don't know about you, and I know it's been 20 years and inflation and all that, but when I heard $75 million, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if somehow I could have gotten scrapped together $20 million and bought the team because franchises now, I mean, God, there's $500 million. I can't even remember what, what, do you know, Vegas played a ridiculous amount just to get into the league. Well, they paid $500 million and it looks like Seattle is going to pay $650 million. So. Yeah, I mean, it just, what a great deal for Comsat Video. And these guys are admittedly not hockey fans. They moved the team to Colorado. You know, I feel like, you know, they're not hockey fans. They're coming in. And this is a weird time. You know, Fox has picked up the NHL. You're getting national broadcasting. You are you're seeing a lot more memorabilia. Are you noticing the NHL sort of turning more into a big business from a, you know, a smaller operation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I went through the, the years that where uh, Fox came in and did the Sunday games and they had that roll of puck being shot. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Cross, right. So, yeah. So it started becoming really big. And again, uh, and not to say that we had a lot to do with it, but Detroit Red Wings were, were a very good team in a big market. So that was growing. The Red or uh, the Rangers have won in 94. Uh, now you can feel the market. And Gretzky goes to, uh, you know, from LA goes to and start his movement. So hockey was definitely growing and becoming a very big market. It was very tough for those small market teams to compete. You know, and and for them to sell the team and, and move it to to Colorado, and my brother was on the team in Colorado the year prior when they were IHL and they won the championship. Then they go next year, and now they have the NHL, NHL team won the championship. So they were uh, 
the fans were, were blessed to have a team that won and then the NHL team come in right away and win the Stanley Cup. You're absolutely right. The Detroit Red Wings were kind of leading the way. I remember that Sergei Fedorov commercial where he's going up against like six goalies and he's wearing those white skates. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys ever give him crap for wearing yeah. those white skates? No, because uh, you know what he was an MVP player, so you don't you don't uh, give them too much crap. I, I, you know, I was I envied uh, what he could do on the ice. He's probably the most skilled guy I've ever played with or against. He could do it all. Uh, he was a real, real good hockey player, and, and there was nothing that that really that he couldn't do from a Selkie Trophy MVP. He's such a strong player. He had a good personality on the ice. He he really uh, helped us obviously because that one two punch with Stevie Y and Sergey they they went against each other they pushed each other to be better which ultimately made our team better. Did you ever hear about how Sergey defected? Did you ever talk to him about that? Yeah, you know I never talked to him about it, but you know Jimmy Devilano once told me that story about it, and it was a pretty enticing story or intriguing story on how he did it. So it, it's so weird now because players just come they say yes or no right and and there. At that time, to keep a guy hidden in the back of a bus or, or a plane coming in somewhere and just grab him from a hotel room and then taking him. So there's some pretty bizarre stories on, on some of those uh, defections. I can't even imagine how his experience was different playing hockey versus yours and the OHL playing in London. The two are probably not even comparable. Yeah. No, no. And you know what? Even now, like you go to Russia and it, it's still a little bit behind and, and the aspect of how the players get treated. I know that uh, some of our players well, during the lockout, Brad Richards and being the caddy, went over to Russia to play and they would never go back. There was yeah. not a chance they would go back. So they did the thing and that was it. You come out of the 95 or the 94 95 season, the lockout's over, you guys make it to the finals. You're doing well for yourself. What are your expectations going into camp for that season? Last season, you know, I had won the scoring championship the year before in 1993 and, uh, in Adirondack, and I had called up one game with the Red Wings, and when they won in Montreal, I scored the only goal, and I got down right after the game. And, and at that point, you know, you, you, you would be a little bit disappointed, which I was, but at the same time, I felt that, okay, I, I did it. I, I played in the NHL. Now I know I can stay in the NHL. I know I can play at this level. So now my next goal is to be there every single game. So I went back to, to the Myers and, and finished off pretty well, and, and I came into training camp the next year for that lockout season because we started training camp before we got locked out, and Scotty Bowman first thing he said to me, he says, you were MVP last year. I said, yep. You, you scored a lot of goals. Yep. You won the scoring chip. Yep. Uh, All-star. I said, yep. He says, uh, centerman. I said, yep. And he looks over and he looks see why. He beat him on. He said, no. Looks over at Keith Primo. No. And Chris Draper has been the checking center year for a full year, so I said, no. He go Larry off. I said no, and uh, so he says, "What does uh, what does it sound like to be a checking left winger?" I said, "Perfect." So <laughs> you had to, I had to adapt my game to, to 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 make it to the NHL. So right away, there wasn't any room for me to be that that offensive player that I was uh, at the AHL level uh, with that team. So if I wanted to stay, which I had to prove that I could be a checking left winger and, and curve my game a little bit. And then going back to Baltimore, that kind of, I played that role in Baltimore. So it kind of helped me when I finally got to the NHL that, that I could play that role. So I, I had the expectations for me going into that year then were to make the team and become a regular NHL player. And I did. We had a lockout season. It was 48 games. I think I played 22 or 24 little games, half the games. Uh, and I missed some with some injuries. So it was, I was in the lineup pretty, pretty regularly with the team. And then obviously in the playoffs, I didn't play the first two rounds and Stevie White hurt his, uh, knee 
So I get four of the five games against uh, Chicago, and then I played two of the, the four games that we lost to New Jersey in the finals. So by 95-96, do you feel that you've got a spot on the team, or are you still coming to camp competing with several other players for that well, fourth line spot? Well, I had signed then going into the season. I was under, I wasn't unrestricted, but they had this rule. Because of the locker, there's, there's mixtures of rules. So I was filed for arbitration knowing that because it was the arbitration was pushed back. I had arbitration rights going into that 94-95 season, but it got pushed back. So after the lock was over, we just played the season, and then the arbitrations from the year prior were going to get hurt. So I was going to get paid money for that last year, and I made the whole year. So I was just amazed. We'll go, we'll go one or we'll go two-way with the arbitrator. Say you want 500 or 400 up and take 60 down. And he says, whatever they give you, it's a bonus because I have made two, it was at that time, 225. So... The Red Wings knew there was no battle because I already played the whole season up, and I was going to get the arbitrator was going to rule it, but I was going to probably get a lot more money in that. So the Red Wings came forward and gave me a big signing bonus and three-year one-way contract. So at that point, when I got the contract, I knew that that was my my chance and, and to, to be a regular. So in training camp, you've got to be now that you've got that contract, you got to be excited. Who were you playing on a line with at the beginning of the season? Do you recall? I was playing with Keith Primo and Dino Cicerelli. Speaking of Dino, I, w- I want to talk about him a little bit. Does that guy? I feel like he yeah. made his living camping in front of the net. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know what? He was a warrior. He, uh, only a certain amount of guys would do that. We, we're looking, always looking for guys now that that will do that for our team. And at this point, you know, and when Dino played his career, there's there only a certain amount of guys. Dave Andertruck, another guy. But those guys played hard minutes. They worked for their goals. Everyone says, oh, well, he did stand for that. Well, no, he, he bowed his, his his butt off. Just a lot of abuse. Just a lot of goals. And he did. And he did. And, and coincidentally, yeah. of course, it's only fitting, since this is the rivalry, that your first game of the season at McNichols Arena is against the Colorado Avalanche. Do you have any memories of that first game of the season? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a hard game. I, I think we lost that game. You did. Yeah. So, you know, it was... They had moved, and they were a, a good team. Obviously, was led by Joe Sackett, but they had some really good supporting cast with Kamensky and and uh, on their defense. And uh, Patrick Walton wasn't there yet, right? Um, but they and Sylvain Lafay, they had they had an experienced team. They had a, a hard nosed team, and I think that they were rejuvenated a little bit by moving from Quebec to there too. October 27th, a couple games later, Scotty Bowman comes up with this idea. He supposedly gets it from the professor Igor Larionov. To put five Russian players all together at one time, and the Russian five is formed. Was yeah. that the first time you saw it, or did you get a sneak peek of that in camp, or did that just come out of the blue? Uh, you know what? I think that Scotty was always innovative, and, and the one thing that, about Scotty, why he lasted so long in so many different generations, not just because he's a great coach, but because he was always listening, and, and he was open-minded to suggestions, and, and he was such an intelligent guy that he's watched hockey, whether it be North American hockey, NHL hockey, or European hockey, and obviously that Russian five is a European hockey, not just because it's a Russian five, but now if you watch over there in Russia or anywhere, they have five lines. They have four sets of deep and four sets of wingers uh, lines, right? So they, they play that those lines together. So that's where that five, the Russian five came. He said, well, I'm going to play this, this group together all the time because that, over in Europe, that's what they do. The first line plays with their first pairing defense, second line, second line, third, third. Well, over in North America, we had four lines and you have three pairs of defense. So it was always mixed up. So that's where that Russian five came. And, and uh, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. That hockey that they played now is, is kind of the hockey that's being played then, was playing now, because it was never give up the puck. They Some would change. When Igor layering off, the three guys would go off the change and, and with a defenseman, two two linemen and a defenseman. Igor would carry the puck, and he'd pass it back to Batisov, 
and they would play, you know, play catch with it. And all of a sudden, now with three new linemates come on, and, and you change over. Now they move up. We're on attack. We never just dumped it in. Where most teams and where our team was like that before was you got the red line, you were tired, you dumped the puck in, and you went for a change. The other team gets the puck, they come back at you. So that Russian five, their whole concept of the game was never give up puck. And they did it all over from the neutral zone, offensive zone, defensive zone. They controlled the game so well, as you said. There's one night where you guys deliver uh, a little bit of a gem to the Colorado Avalanche. You play the Montreal Canadiens, and Patrick Waugh gets routed 11-1. to I think he led in nine goals. And he ends up saying, this is my last game in Montreal, and actually walks up to team president Ronald Corey and says, I'm done, get me out of here. Do you recall this game at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, very, very well. You know, it was one of those games that, for, I think it was, in, was it November or December? December 2nd. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was early early December. And, and so when we went in there, we had played the night before and played a pretty game. We go in there, they're a well-rested team. It's on Hockey Night in Canada. All our guys are, are revved up. Obviously, it's the original six. And it, there's no different feeling than when you play two original six teams play each other. It's one thing about you're playing original six on, on yourself. You put that jersey on, you feel special, a little bit different. But then when you're playing another Rizzo Six, and it's in Montreal Canadiens, in Montreal, you're ready to go. And that rivalry from the long history of those rivalries, we felt it as players too. And we wanted we wanted to to uh, to, sh- to be a good team that night and play our best. And and, and so we went in there, and, and uh, goals became easy. Not that it was Patrick's fault, but the game became easy to us, and we were running around and ran up the score, and it was just it was an easy game for us. And uh, we remember being on the bench and, and seeing Patrick when he finally got pulled uh, uh, and then going by and saying that. And we didn't know what it was said, but we heard after the media was telling us that it, was, it wasn't good and shut it out. At the end of the day, it cut kind of our own throat because, uh, you know, he goes to Colorado, not only just him, but their captain, Mike Keene, gets pushed alongside too. So two huge pieces of uh, the Stanley Cup team uh, in Colorado were, were really because of what we did to Montreal. So, I, I, they felt that the, the measuring stick obviously was to, to get out of the West was against us, so they were making a big move. Do you think that trade happens if the Avalanche are staying no. in Quebec? There's absolutely 100% no way that Patrick Waugh agrees to go to Quebec. He would have he went to anywhere, but, and you also have to remember who the GM at the time was in, in Quebec. Too, so that was Mr. Lacroix at the time, so obviously with that, that, the French background and, and knowing Patrick too, things made I think it was easier to make that deal. If I'm not mistaken, I think uh, Mr. Lacroix was actually Patrick's agent at one point. And so that kind of came together really nicely. So as you alluded to, you guys played Colorado three more times and you smack him around pretty good. Yeah. Well, even when they had Patrick, like the last game of the season that we played them, I think we beat them seven or eight, one in Detroit. And I think Patrick started in that fold. We were all over and we dominated him in that game. And and I, I know that after the game, we felt, I know I felt, can't speak for the rest of the team, but I felt that, that there was really no one could stand in our way. Uh, we were too good. We, had, we, and we set the record that year for 62 wins. We were just going to bowl through everyone. It was incredible. You guys set a record, like you said, 62-13-7, President's Trophy. Yeah. And this is really your first full season in the NHL. You've got to be on cloud nine at this point. Yeah, and then thinking that I'm playing on the third line, the odd time I get to move up when, um, when I was injured, so, so I think that I had to get 11 or 12 goals that year. Things were going really well, and, and we had a good team. We had a really good team. It was one of those nights, you, every, every night you put the jersey on, you, you'd had a chance to win. And the other thing was, too, that that one was five minute overtimes of five on five. There was no score, it was a tie. So there was no four and four, three on three. It was, it was five minutes, and nine times out of ten, that, that 
five minutes we ended up in a tie. The playoffs are coming up. Colorado goes yeah. through Vancouver 4-2 in the series. Chicago, then they beat Chicago. You guys go through Winnipeg and then go through a seven-game series against the St. Louis Blues. And this Blues team is like a Hall of Fame team now. I mean, Gretzky, McInnes, you know, so many good players on this. And Steve Eiserman cuts across the middle. Longer, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He hit a cookie top shelf and it was beautiful. Yeah. You get out of the series. You're going to play Colorado You've played him during the regular season. What's your mentality going in? Are you thinking, and by no means do I think, am I saying, is this going to be a breeze? But are you thinking, hey, we came, went through the St. Louis team. We could probably beat these Colorado guys. Well, you know, I'll start off you know, with uh, Winnipeg. It was uh, such a uh, historic and, and emotional series there because that was the last time Winnipeg was going to be playing in Winnipeg. They're moving next year, and that was well documented and, and told. So, you know, we beat them in six games. We, our game started last game, six games within. Our fifth game, we uh, had me blown to his head. I think it was two one. He had thirty five shots against him, and he played so well. And we had to go back for a sixth game. And at noon, we get to the rink for a three o'clock game, and it, the rink was packed. So it was a it was a very emotional series for for both teams. And we get out of that, and we go on to play against St. Louis. And, and first against St. Louis were kind of really easy games, one four one eight one. And now we're going to St. Louis. We lose in overtime, one nothing. Then we lose uh, uh, another game. Uh, uh, so we lose in overtime, and then we lose next game one nothing. Regretsy scores. Come back, we lose game five in overtime, and now we're going back to St. Louis, and we have to win in St. Louis on the road to get for game seven. Here we are, the, the team has won 62 games, so we spent a lot of physical energy and emotional energy getting through game six, and then going through game seven, double overtime to Stevie Y scores from from almost the, the red line of that slap shot underneath the bar. We were emotionally a tired team, I think, and that's not to take credit anything away from Colorado, but we had gone through two real emotional series, and especially along with St. Louis, where, you know, at this day and age in the NHL, when you have chances to close teams out, you've got to close them out because the extra games and the extra periods come back to haunt you. And I think that that especially did because then we come in and, and Colorado beat us both games in Detroit. Uh, I think one was in overtime and one was uh, in, re- in regulation, but... They they came in uh, ready and, and, and a game plan and and uh, really it was just about hockey for them and they came in and played such a, a good first two games it really they had us rattled they really had us rattled going back into uh, into uh, Colorado and for, unfortunately enough we won game three and then we had a hard fought battle in game four and lost it um, then we win game five pretty handily back home and then you come back for that that notorious game six which really set the stage and tone for the history that is behind that with the the emotions and, and obviously the hatred between one another. How hilarious is that story that Scotty Bowman goes up to him and says, so you're an all-star kid. You want to make the team? You better than this guy? You better than that guy? You better than this guy? Okay, well, how about the fourth line? And, and Tim responded the same way all of us would have responded. Yep, that sounds good, coach. Whatever you say. I just thought that was awesome. Thanks for tuning in to part one of our interview. Don't forget, part two will drop Thursday at 8 a.m., where we'll talk more about the rest of the series as well as the famous hit that Chris Draper took from Claude Lemieux. Side note to all this, I know in the interview I go and say, I wonder if there's a way looking back I could have raised $25 million to buy the team. Pretty hard considering I was probably 12 years old then. Not sure why I said that, but it made me laugh when I heard back the interview. Anyways, don't forget to check us out. Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook as well as Snapshots in on Twitter. We'll see everybody Thursday at 8 a.m. for part two of our interview with Tim Taylor. Make it a great day.